the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today about the Democratic Party and how it regrouped from the loss to Donald Trump in 2016 with the author of a book that looks deep inside the party's politics and dynamics to discern where it's been and where it's headed. And we'll also talk about a local journalist who is being held captive in Myanmar and the extraordinary efforts underway to have him freed. That's all next on Detroit Today. Right now, the news from NPR. To Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. It's been more than two weeks since journalist and Metro Detroit native Danny Fenster was detained by security forces in Myanmar. Fenster has earned a reputation for telling stories of the persecuted and the downtrodden in America and abroad. Now, his family and supporters say he's facing persecution himself. Many people here in Michigan and in the federal government are working tirelessly to try to free him and return him home here to Southeast Michigan. I want to welcome two of those people to the program. Congressman Andy Levin is a Democrat from Bloomfield Township, represents Michigan's 9th District. He is leading Michigan's congressional delegation to have Danny Fenster freed from captivity and returned home. Uh, Congressman, welcome back to Detroit Thanks, today. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be with you, yes. as always. Yes. And uh, we also have with us Brian Fenster, who is Danny Fenster's brother. Brian, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you so much for uh, for the opportunity here. Appreciate yeah. it. So let's start with the uh, background on Danny and what happened to him, what has happened to him in, uh, in Myanmar. Uh, Congressman, I'll, I'll let you go first. Well... Uh, Danny was trying to come home to see Brian and his folks, and, and, you know, they do live in Huntington Woods, and uh, he was at the airport, and they grabbed him, and, uh, you know, without any good reason, obviously without a warrant, no proper process, and it took a while to find out where he is. We now do know he's in uh, the insane prison. That's not insane in English. That's I-N-S-E-I-N, but it's a terrible prison with a long history of of, uh, political prisoners. And so we are just bound and determined to work with the family, which has done just an amazing job of, you know, carrying the torch to get Danny out of there. But we're going to do everything we can to get him out immediately Mm. and unconditionally. Mm. Uh, Brian, uh, as journalists, we always understand that – that the privileges we have in this country uh, don't necessarily apply in 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 other countries, and that uh, there are places in the world where governments can retaliate against you uh, for what you say or what you do. Give us a sense of what your brother thinks about all of that, and uh, how how much he he thought of the potential danger he was in. Did he believe? 
that he might be in danger for the things that he was saying and writing. Yeah, you know, he 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 knew what he was getting into for sure, um, but he, he carries a, a deep responsibility. There's a, there is a responsibility when you're a journalist to to be accurate, to be truthful, to to uh, you know, it's a cliche thing to say. We keep saying it, but it's the truth. I mean, to be a voice for the oppressed, to be a voice for the voiceless, and uh, I, you know, he. He's very uh, selfless that way, and um, another thing we talk a lot about today is uh, privilege, and he, he absolutely checks his privilege every single day um, and is humbled by, by his work and, and helping people. So he knew what he was, the potential what he was getting into, um, but again, he carries that responsibility very closely. Mm-hmm. And at the time he, he was there, I mean, he's been there just over two years uh, ironically, he moved there May 3rd, uh, 2019, on World Press Freedom Day. Hmm. Um, so at the time, you know, they were operating under a democracy, and, you know, the, these these troubles w- weren't happening, obviously. But um, journalists have been leaving since the coup without issue, uh, which started in February. So, yeah, we're very, very puzzled. Um, he didn't think he was a direct target in any way. So we're just we're just trying to get some answers. First and foremost, establish his physical, mental and emotional well-being, because it's been I think we're day 18 right now and mm. we haven't spoken to him. Yeah. So so give me a sense of how your family is is managing through this. Uh, as you point out, the maddening part or maybe the most maddening part uh, seems to me to be that you just you just don't know what what could be happening to him yeah i mean you know we know this is going to take time things move incredibly slow there which is frustrating but we understand this is how this regime is operating we just want to talk to him we just want to make sure he's okay in in the least then we can worry about getting him home um the family is it's you know as you can imagine it's it's not good each day is is getting worse mm-hmm. Um, my parents are broken up, but they are showing incredible resolve and speaking with the media and keeping his story out there. Personally, I am, I, I haven't really dealt with it, to be honest. I'm, I'm just trying to take that energy and turn it into, uh, helping create this movement to get him home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Congressman, uh, talk about the ways in which, you know, as a member of Congress, you're able to try to get uh, to try to get Danny freed from uh, from captivity and and what that process I guess looks like well it's it's evolved Stephen over over these short couple of weeks here I guess but uh, first and foremost it's the job of of our State Department and our other parts of our executive branch and I and so one thing I could do is pick up a phone and get access to ambassadors around the world. And I, I think that very first day I talked to our ambassador uh, in Burma or Myanmar. We I tend to just call it Burma, which is its you know older name and mm-hmm. informal name. And uh, you know, and since then we've just been in touch constantly um, with the se- the secretary's office, the office of consular affairs, um, the uh, you, the Burmese ambassador here in Washington, I talked to on a regular basis, um, started calling neighboring countries ambassadors 
uh, ambassadors of countries that may have influence. We're branching out. Well, I think a baseline thing is this is an extremely isolated country, and it's a coup regime, right, that isn't treating its own people very well. And the U.S. doesn't have a lot great relationship, in part because it's so isolated, but in part because we have values and we are critical of the regime. And so not only are we working with through official channels, but now I'm reaching out to and, and, and with in total coordination with the family to anybody who might have influence to mm. be able to get uh, Danny out. Mm. So, um, you know, there's uh, we're, we're basically trying to turn over every rock to see what the lever might be that, that gets them out. I, and I just have to say that they're violating you know, the, the the international laws, the Vienna Convention requirements on consular access. Mm-hmm. We should have had access to him immediately. He literally still has not been able to have any contact with our embassy there. That is unacceptable and illegal. Um, and so we're all, we're all pushing for that. Um, but we're really trying to see what, uh, what can be done. And, uh, you know, you can say, well, it's an insular regime. But I think the the campaign the family has created, the way Brian is talking about, he hasn't dealt with it yet. That's because every day he is just basically running this very organic, powerful campaign of love and concern and connection. I mean, the people I've talked to, who you know, Berkeley Bears and journalists and you know, people who uh, know. The, the uh, Buddy and Rose Fenster, or no Brian or Danny. It's just amazing what they've done, and I it matters, Stephen. I feel like it really matters because our White House and our State Department, the folks who do social media and so forth, they know when something has legs, mm-hmm. and this family has just not let go on telling Danny's story, and it's been inspiring, and we're just gonna not stop working until we get them out of there. So, so uh, and if I, if I could jump in real quick, ahead, Stephen, so sorry. Um, That's okay. I, I have to, we have to give credit where it's due. I mean, Congressman Levin, uh, we, we say in our family, he's our guardian angel and uh, he really is. Uh, we talk every day and um, he, he has done just an incredible job of, of kind of garnering support from our, our whole delegation in Michigan. So, I mean, it's, you know, we've been working hard, They've been working hard, too. Mm. Uh, uh, Andy, um, Brian mentioned uh, earlier the the coup that's taken place uh, in Myanmar, and uh, I'm wondering how much more complicated that makes these uh, negotiations and whether uh, officials in the U.S. have any relationships with the new authorities uh, in, in that country. Well, so, I mean, first of all, I just have to say personally how weird this is for me, Stephen, because I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and not only that, I'm on the Asia Subcommittee, and not only that, I'm the Vice Chair of the Asia, Asia Subcommittee, and I wrote the, our, H, our HRES 134, which passed the House, mm-hmm. criticizing the coup. <laughs> so it's just, I'm not happy that this thing I've been studying has come home to roost, this personally. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to point out that the quote-unquote new coup regime is the same, led by the same general who's been, you know, the ultimate power in Burma for many years. Hmm. 
so it's it's uh it's not a new thing it's a kind of back to the future thing and they um you know you've got north korea i mean you can count on a few fingers regimes that are more isolated than this one Mm -hmm. and the coup has certainly complicated things but you know the military there was the ultimate authority even during the tender experiment with democracy that they had and remember how imperfect it was i mean there was a genocide against the rohingya perpetrated by this military that has you know fully taken back power because they didn't like the outcome of the election in november there and uh, you know, the minority peoples around the uh, periphery, not just the Rohingya, but the Kachin and Karin and Chan and other peoples, there's over a million and a half people of those ethnic groups. They didn't even participate in November. You know, so it's a complicated history of sort of trying to begin to have a democracy that was cut off very violently. And this regime, uh, you know, has suppressed all dissent. And here you have this brave, idealistic American guy in there just telling the truth, doing nothing wrong. We've really been able to confirm, Stephen, that every I was dotted and T was crossed about his status, you know, that the that the information service he was working for was they were paying the taxes. He had the paperwork. There's just no reason for this. Um, and it should be it should be stated also that he wasn't inciting violence or using his personal beliefs in his work. He was, he was at a desk as an editor and confirming English translations mm. um, that from the reporters. So he, he was not on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And working for a, for a web service that the government hasn't shut down and they haven't been arresting people. So we think they may have just made a mistake here. They may have, um, you know, thought he was working for a, a, a different web service that he used to work for, but that was like before the coup. That we, there's just no legitimate reason for this. And, you know, in a way that gives us, obviously it's outrageous, but in a way it gives you hope, right, that if you can penetrate through and, you know, find a way for them to uh, realize that he's not a threat to them, you know, that maybe we can get him sprung out of there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Andy Levin, uh, Congressman who represents Michigan's 9th District. Uh, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Uh, thanks for coming by and thanks for what you're doing to try to uh, get Danny Fenster uh, freed. Thanks so much, Stephen. Keep the faith, everybody. Yes, and Brian Fenster, uh, brother of Danny Fenster. Of course, we all uh, send our best wishes uh, for uh, his quicker release uh, at some point uh, to get him back uh, home. But I really appreciate you coming uh, on the program and talking as well. This is this is great, Stephen. We appreciate you and your, your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at a new book on the recalibration and rebirth of the Democratic Party. Think of how low the party was and felt after the 2016 election. And then think about the bounce back in 2018 and then in 2020. What produced that bounce back and what are the dynamics going forward for the party in governance? Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. The battle for the soul of a nation is a phrase that we have frequently heard come out of the mouth of President Joe Biden. He invoked it after the alt-right marches in Charlottesville in 2017 and later as a campaign slogan in 2020, where he was one of more than two dozen candidates vying for the position of Democratic nominee for president. Back then, all of those contenders had their own ideas of what the soul of America really looked like and what it could look like moving forward. And while no one could have predicted the ways our lives were indelibly altered by the events of the past year, these big changes to life in America, specifically our political landscape, really began taking shape the moment Donald Trump assumed the presidency back in 2017. Our next guest wrote a book chronicling the aftermath of the Democrats' defeat in that historic election of 2016, and starting in 2018, began tracking the party's recalibration and its rebirth leading up to that 2020 presidential race. Edward Isaac Dover is a staff writer for The Atlantic who has covered Democratic politics for 15 years, and his new book is titled Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign, to defeat Trump. In this book, Dover not only provides a comprehensive look at the 2020 race, but also takes us behind the scenes to see details and a new look at several figures who are key to the future of the Democratic Party. Edward Isaac Dover, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks for having me. My only regret is that I'm not actually in Detroit and, and haven't gotten to spend much time there since the pandemic hit, but uh, I'm glad to be here anyway. Yes, hopefully soon we will all be able to to see each other in person again. Uh, I'm, I'm anticipating that uh, by late summer that, that may be true. Uh, let's start with uh, what made you decide to write this book. It's a very in, intriguing premise. I mean, I think uh, people who think back to 2016 – and the long, long faces that uh, that people inside the Democratic Party in particular had about uh, the, the performance of the party uh, in that presidential race and, and even the down ballot races. Um, you know, it was a pivotal it was a pivotal moment. Talk about what what made you want to focus on the path back to victory and governance. Well, in some ways, it starts for me on election night 2016. Uh, I was at the Javits Center in New York covering what was supposed to be Hillary Clinton's party. Uh, obviously, wasn't much of a party. I ended up leaving at about 10 p.m. Uh, and uh, getting a cab back to my hotel to get my bag and take a train back to D.C. in the middle of the night because it was clear that things were shifting very rapidly in terms of <laughs> the political coverage I needed to do. And as I was walking out of the Javits Center, I sent a bunch of emails to people who worked in the Obama White House. And the subject line was, do you have a plan? And there was nothing else in the email. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, only one email came back. Most of them didn't respond. One email came back and it just said, nope, 
Uh, and things kind of took off from there. And I, for me, it was a question of how much of a surprise was it really when you, it was obviously a shock that night, but when you look at what happened, what were there things that made this, uh, the, the loss that Democrats had, not just with Trump uh, winning, but with uh, a number of the other losses that they had had and that we that I'd seen in in covering uh, Obama's second term and and uh, the problems that Democrats have been having winning elections, it should should people have seen it coming more? And as I set out to think about this and uh, looked at how many people I thought would be running, for president, uh, I should say I thought it would be about 16 max. It ended up being 26. Uh, it, it became clear to me that there were going to be a lot of interesting arguments and interesting people involved in thinking about what Democrats needed to do now. And when you marry those two things together, the how did this happen, and then what goes on, uh, or who these interesting people are and what their their approaches are to the progressive wing of the party, uh, people who were making generational arguments, people who were making arguments that they needed to be, uh, like Julian Castro, a Latino candidate, or like uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker tapping into a lot of uh, other thoughts about diversity and, and uh, women running in this most diverse field ever. Then it seemed like, okay, there's an interesting story there. And within the context of the Trump presidency and everything that was going on and that was clear by 2018 when I started working on this book, uh, if you go back and look at the proposal that I wrote, uh, it says this is going to be the most interesting election ever and probably the most important in the history of America. Mm. Uh, that all seemed to be true before I knew anything about the pandemic or the economic crisis or uh, all the ways <laughs> that we've been rethinking society before George Floyd was killed and everything that set off last summer. Uh, but it all came together in a way that uh, tells the story that uh, honestly, I think a lot of people look back at the election and say, oh, I know what happened because so much of the Trump part of it was playing out in front of them every day. Mm -hmm. There's so much in this book that that hadn't uh, been reported before that was a surprise to me, even though I was covering it day to day for my, my day job at The Atlantic. Mm. So so let's just kind of trace over what the Democrats do in the three years between January of 2017 and maybe January of 2020 when uh, things start to, to, to come together around the idea of a Joe Biden candidacy for president and uh, the momentum begins to build toward uh, toward November of 2020 when when he wins. How does a party pick itself up off the floor uh, the way the Democrats did? Uh, in a very uh, inconsistent, uh, <laughs> surprising ways, um, you know, it was a lot of things going on. There, there are uh, in the early parts of the book, there are a couple of dinners that are traced uh, of people who, for the most part, are not really well-known names, uh, but within the Democratic Party are uh, often some of the main mechanics of how things get done. So it starts even in December of 2016, there's a dinner at John Podesta's house uh, that uh, Podesta was obviously Clinton's campaign chairman mm -hmm. in 2016. And, and he invites not even a dozen people over, makes them some risotto, and they start talking strategy. How do they do this? How do they, what do they focus on? What? How do they get the, the different 
uh, activist groups, uh, the different sort of grassroots organizations, not the grassroots themselves, but these, the, uh, whether it's uh, the teachers union uh, and Randy Weingarten, the head of that was at that dinner or the big uh, super PAC Democrats have priorities USA uh, and the head of that uh, super PAC was there at the dinner. Uh, and how do they divide up the work so that they're concentrated on the things that need to be happening? It's very discreet decisions that happen there. Like, do we try to oppose every Trump cabinet nominee or do we focus on one person? Mm. It ended up being the latter. Mm -hmm. uh, do we, uh, who takes care of uh, really pushing up the, the, um, uh, the data operation that they realized had been so far behind what Trump and, and the Republicans had built. And then it's also uh, things that happen on their own, essentially. The Women's March, remember that's the day after Trump's inauguration, and it was such an amazing uh, crowd, whatever you think of their politics, that, that so many people showed up, it was stunning to people, uh, not just in Washington, but all over the country. Uh, and one of the people that I talked to for the book, uh, Cecile Richards, who was at Planned Parenthood at the time, made the point to me that you know if some group had tried to organize the women's march it would have taken months and months and months and millions of dollars and it probably wouldn't have come off quite like that so that's going on and then you have a reinvestment of some of the democratic leaders uh, whether that's uh, barack obama or uh, people uh, lower down uh, in, in elected politics thinking how do we grab onto this and do things differently what do we need to invest in obama getting much more uh, involved in things like gerrymandering than he had been before in uh, doing some things behind the scenes to build up the Democratic National Committee after not doing much of that as president. And the last piece of it, uh, and this is all traced in the early part of the book, is that there are some new groups themselves that form, things like Indivisible uh, or a group called Run for Something that are people taking it into their own hands to say, we've got to do something to activate people in a different way and organize in a different way than even all these other democratic groups around have been doing for all these years. Mm -hmm. I'm talking with uh, Edward Isaac Dover. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic, and he's covered democratic politics for 15 years, beginning in his native New York, on to the Obama White House, and then across 29 states during the 2020 election cycle. He's got a new book out, and it is titled Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' campaign to defeat Trump. Uh, the book details how the Democrats pulled themselves back together uh, after that uh, crushing defeat in uh, 2016, unexpected defeat in 2016, uh, to rally uh, back to victory in 2018 in uh, the midterm elections and, and state elections like here in, in Michigan, but even bigger in 2020 to get Joe Biden, former vice president, uh, elected to the presidency. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, let us know if you have a question about the behind-the-scenes action within the Democratic Party leading up to last year's uh, presidential election in November. Do you have thoughts or predictions about how the party will fare in the future? How are they going to do in the midterms in 2022? Will they be able to hold the White House in 2024? Uh, do you think Biden has been doing the kind of job that propels the party forward uh, in a meaningful way? Uh, or are you somebody who's still really worried about uh, Democratic 
institutions and 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 values? Are you worried about this presidency? Uh, are you uh, somebody who thinks that we ought to be headed in an entirely different direction? Are you somebody who uh, doesn't really identify with uh, with democratic politics and are afraid of some of the things? that uh, President Biden has done so far and is uh, talking about doing in the future. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to work you into, uh, into the conversation. Uh, I, I want to talk a little... Um, about the tension that existed early on in the 2020 race around uh, Kamala Harris, who ended up being the vice presidential pick uh, and now is uh, vice president, of course, uh, and Biden, who ended up uh, getting the nomination, specifically in that memorable moment on stage where she challenged his record on racial segregation. I thought that was a really pivotal moment uh, in the Democratic primaries. It was it was the most uh, aggressive challenge I, that I that I remember seeing uh, to Biden and his record by another candidate. But you know, in the end, uh, they end up on the ticket together, and now now they're in the White House together. Uh, talk about that tension and how it got ironed out. Well, uh, it's coming up on just about two years ago. It was the end of June, twenty nineteen. And what happened there is that Harris was having more trouble in the beginning of her presidential campaign than most people realized. And they knew that she needed to make a splash both for her poll numbers and for her fundraising numbers. And she tapped into what was some real uncertainty about Biden that had been accentuated uh, by some comments he'd made a few weeks before, sorry, a few days before the debate. Uh, saying that he had worked well with segregationists in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, one of the things the Democratic Party was going through was thinking about, okay, Joe Biden was leading the polls from uh, early out, but was an older white man representative of where the Democratic Party had headed to? Or was Kamala Harris, a younger woman of color, more representative of it? And she decided to uh, take a pretty hard swing at him. Uh, And in the book, you see these details of her, uh, the internal conversations of figuring out why they had to do it the way they did it, including when she lands on the line that she eventually said, which is, you are not a racist. I know you're not a racist, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was a lot of tension inside the Harris campaign of whether that was the right thing to do, whether that was essentially saying, well, you're a racist, but I'm not going to say it, (laughs) Uh, and how that would be taken, and whether uh, going so hard at Biden would uh, essentially destroy her chances of being picked for a position down the road should he be the one who won the nomination. Uh, And when she ended up saying it on stage and uh, building up to that uh, critique of busing and saying that she had been uh, been, uh, sort of heir to what the situation was when she was a child, said that little girl was me, uh, Biden was furious about it. Uh, So furious that he uh, turns to Pete Buttigieg on stage next to him and says, 
and uh, I won't make you bleep me, but it says that, that was some effing BS. Uh, a couple days later, Jill Biden is talking to some supporters uh, and she's mad about it. And she says, uh, with the life that he's led and all the work that he's done to stand up there and call her racist, go F yourself. Um, you know, as a reporter, it's always fun to get these, uh, to get politicians cursing, but it, it's actually more than fun because I think that it, it reveals the true feelings, the unvarnished feelings that people have, you can see just how angry they were about it. And this continued to be a thing for uh, for a, a year going into the running mate selection process. Not so much for Biden. Anita Dunn, uh, Biden's top advisor, said to me at one point that Biden's the only Irishman who doesn't carry a grudge. Uh, but uh, he was worried that it would uh, the the wound of this for other people and for for Harris the tension that was there would get in the way of them having a good working relationship and the kind of model that he wanted from when he was Obama's vice president uh, and what grew into a very close personal relationship where not only are they friends, but their wives are friends, Biden's grandchildren are friends with Obama's children. Uh, and he was stressing about that last summer. Mm. And one of the people that he talks to about it is uh, is Barack Obama. And you can see the conversation basically that they had in the book. Uh, and uh, Obama says to him, listen, Joe, you you called me unqualified when we were running against each other. You said I, I wasn't ready to be president. And we got over it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also at the beginning, we didn't have a great working relationship, but we built it up over time. You got to give it time. Uh, and it, it could come together. But the most important thing you have to think of is who's going to help you win the most, because it doesn't matter who you want to have lunch with uh, or who you feel would be a good governing partner um, if you don't get elected to govern first. And uh, and Biden thought about this a lot. And uh, like th there's a, there's a lot in the book that gets into uh, some of the other considerations that were there, including uh, Governor Whitmer, uh, who was very much in tune with where Biden was uh, on a lot of things. Uh, but ultimately, he decides that Harris is the right choice uh, for a bunch of reasons, including that it, it, she uh, seemed like the one who would do the most to, to help him win. And so you see that uh, as how she gets picked. And, and I, I do think you've seen a, a, a stronger than most people expected working relationship in their first uh, couple months as president and vice president. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation Let's go to Arnold in East Detroit. Arnold, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, I, I agree with uh, uh, your your guest on, on most most things he's saying. But uh, one of the big things that uh, affected the election was the effect of social media, the late night comedians, uh, and basically the mainstream press, uh, basically uh, nonstop uh, criticism and attack on. Uh, on Republicans and Trump. I mean, they, they did a really good job of uh, demonizing. Now he helped himself <laughs> also by doing some really stupid stuff, but uh, yeah, social media, I mean, you know, people gave up watching late night uh, comedy, you know, like the tonight show or whatever, because it was just for four years, it was nonstop Republican and Trump bashing. And, and the same thing with social media. I mean, 
if you said the wrong thing on social media, you'd get banned. And so, so Arnold, I'm curious. Did you feel that way? Did you stop watching late night? Uh... I stopped watching the uh, the Academy Awards. I stopped watching mm. a lot of stuff because you know uh, sports. Look what was happening in sports. You know, you know, you, you go to a, an athletic game to uh, get away from your job and your things and everything else, and the next thing you know, it's a big political thing, an anti-Trump deal, you know, or whatever, anti-American. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that helped. Mm-hmm. Now, Trump hurt himself, and I agree with uh, your, your guess that the Democratic Party did a good job of picking itself up off the floor and reorganizing itself. And there were some fortuitous things like the Women's March that he mentioned and mm-hmm. stuff like that that mm-hmm. they could <laughs> – leverage you know and stuff like that but the biggest effect was social media hmm. uh, and arnold, mass media yeah arnold i i, I really appreciate uh, the call and the and the comments obviously i mean if you listen to the show you know i disagree with you especially about uh, especially about sports and sports figures uh, and and the compelling i think uh, need for them to be able to uh, express their opinions about things other than sports uh, because of the platforms, the stages that they're on. But I really do appreciate uh, the call and, uh, and and your insight there. Uh, uh, Isaac, uh, t- tell me tell me what you think about uh, about social media, about media, uh, about the anti-trump wave uh, that was no question propelled by, by by media over four years and what role it played in the 2020 election? Well, I mean, I think we've got to split up media a little bit there. Some of the news coverage uh, that obviously was very critical of President Trump that was picking up on things that he was doing that were inviting criticism. Uh, And then there's the uh, Tonight Show, sports, you know, that sort of thing where Mm -hmm. uh, obviously media figures, but more in entertainment. Uh, And I do think that one of the things that I I try to pick up on in the book, especially as it gets to the general election portion of it, it, is not... This is not another Trump book. There's not a there, there's not a lot of Donald Trump in it at all. Although he's uh, the context for everything that's going on, mm-hmm. uh, and you see how it does become so interconnected. What's going on because everybody was thinking about what was happening in politics and how, especially by last year, it it was something that was being uh, really. Uh, in, in our lives in, in every single way, almost every hour of every day. Uh, so, for example, there's uh, there's a lot about Lady Gaga in the book, more probably than you'd be expecting in a book that's about Democrats. Uh, and uh, I was in Pittsburgh the night before the election with Biden and, uh, and Lady Gaga was there to play at a concert that Biden had to try to get people going. And uh, Biden had wanted Lady Gaga to be at his... Uh, kickoff. She had resisted. She wasn't sure whether she whether he was the right candidate. There was also some issues with the fact that there are people in Lady Gaga's close family uh, who were inclined toward President Trump. And uh, so she didn't want to get involved that way, even though she's had actually a pretty long working relationship with Biden. And then by the time of the election, she's there. And there is that feeling that I think 
Uh, Arnold is right to pick up on that a lot of people uh, in the entertainment industry were so clearly against Trump and were for Biden. And even that was a shift that uh, <laughs> Joe Biden is not the pop culture icon that uh, mm. that other people uh, in politics have been, especially when you compare him to Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. by the time of the election, it really did feel that way. And, and those are more of the stories that I end up tracing in the book. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about the Democratic Party, how it pulled itself back together after 2016 to win the presidency in 2020. We're going to talk a little about what is next for the Democratic Party, what tensions it faces now that it has more power uh, in Washington and is trying to push Uh, presidential agenda through. Uh, We want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. What do you make of what the Democratic Party stands for right now, what it's trying to do, and how successful you think it will be in 2022 and 2024 at holding on to the power it got in 2020? Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and uh, as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Edward Isaac Dover, a staff writer for The Atlantic, who has a new book out titled Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Uh, it is about the way the Democrats picked themselves up off the mat after uh, their defeat to Donald Trump in 2016, pulled it together for the midterms in 2018, and then... Uh, won the presidency again in in 2020. We're talking about uh, what uh, what it lies ahead for the Democratic Party now that it has power in Washington again, and how it uh, pulled itself together, pulled itself back together uh, to win that election. We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about what the Democrats were able to achieve last year uh, at the ballot box, but also? Uh, give us a sense of what you think of the way that they are governing in in Washington right now, in charge in uh, the White House and in both houses of Congress for the first time uh, in many years. Uh, are you happy with the agenda that Joe Biden has as president and happy with the way he's been able to move it through Congress? Uh, or are you somebody who is uh, a little frustrated even uh, by the way the Democrats have uh, have done this and are governing now. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter uh, and put uh, comments there. We'll try to work those into the conversation as well. Uh, Isaac, before we get back to listeners, I want to talk just a bit about the dilemma that I, I see the party facing right now, which is that Uh, In order to reclaim majorities in Congress in particular, uh, it had to turn to candidates who are very different kinds of Democrats than than Kamala Harris or Joe Biden and certainly very different 
um, from uh, the far left uh, parts of the party um, that have bigger voices and and maybe more say right now. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, for instance, who's a congresswoman from here in southeast Michigan and uh, the, the the group of uh, members of Congress that she's a part of uh, stand really far uh, from where someone like uh, Joe Manchin, uh, who's from West Virginia, uh, stands. And yet, without Joe Manchin, there is no Democratic majority in in Congress, and none of the things really that uh, that Joe Biden wants to get done would actually be achieved. This is not a new phenomenon in, in, in politics, uh, especially in, in closely divided times. Uh, you, you, you do have uh, this kind of dynamic uh, uh, show up. But, but I wonder what you make of those tensions and whether uh, you know, that coalition can hold together to govern, first of all, for the next two years in a way that uh, Democrats who voted uh, for them to be in power are expecting, but also whether it will hold together enough to maintain their majorities uh, after the midterms and and then, of course, get uh, get Joe Biden reelected in 2024 or get Kamala Harris uh, elected if, if Joe Biden decides that uh, that he can't uh, that he can't run for a second term. Well, th- those are some simple, easy questions to answer. Stephen. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'll give you like two minutes. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think that the they're all big question marks at the moment uh, because there are so many things that are barreling at each other at the same time. Uh, and that's why you see this level of uh, of tension over things like that, that op-ed that Joe Manchin uh, wrote saying that he wouldn't support the voting, the, the larger voting rights legislation mm-hmm. that Democrats, many Democrats want uh, and wouldn't support getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, everything is happening at the same time and Democrats need to figure out how to get to some sort of a solution here. And one of the th- things that, that this book does, I think, is tell the story of how Democrats got to this point. What are the things that went into it, including uh, tracing how Biden goes from one sense of the presidency that he had in 2019 as sort of a, he would be a reset and give time for uh, the country to, to heal, especially after uh, things like Charlottesville and uh, change the way that politics had been veering. Uh, and that's, that's sort of what he would be. Uh, and instead, because of what happens during the campaign, uh, both in the, the primary campaign and the, uh, the the way that that is run and things that, that come up during it that are in the book. And then, of course, because of the pandemic, he ends up in this very different presidency than he had uh, could have possibly envisioned. Uh, and so I interviewed him for the book. We spoke on February 2nd of this year. It was his first interview as president. Mm-hmm. And he was in the Oval Office. And he said to me, you know, I'm the most progressive person who's ever been president. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> that's a brushback, not just to uh, Bernie Sanders yeah. uh, and that kind of thing, but it's also to uh, to Obama. To Bar- Barack to Obama, people who, yeah. who Who look at Biden and say, oh, you're just the, you know, the moderate old white guy who got rid of Trump. Biden has a very ambitious approach to what he wants. And I write in the book that he 
knows now that he his presidency is in part a function of Barack Obama and Obama picking him as vice president, Obama helping him build up a connection to black voters, which was essential during the primary. He knows that his presidency is, of course, in part a function of Donald Trump uh, and uh, being a reaction to Trump and wanting a lot of people wanting Trump out of the Oval Office. Uh, but he is determined to not let that be his own only place in history. And it's not just out of ego. He, uh, he talks about a fair amount now that if government doesn't get things done, then people lose faith in democracy. And that's how autocracy and worse things creep in. Uh, and so that's, that's how he's looking at this. It's not just like he wants another notch of legislation uh, to be able to say he did. But, or he wants to build up his legacy so there'll be another room at the Biden presidential library. It's such, such a fundamental, huge question for the history of this planet, for the history of this country that is ahead of him when he thinks about, can we get a deal on infrastructure? Right. Can we get the, this coalition to work together? So that's what I think you see going on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, let's go to Gloria in the North End. Gloria, welcome to the show. Um, hi, thank hi. you. And you know, I love you, Stephen. I haven't been on for a while. <laughs> but what I have to say about I, I'm tired of hearing just um, that all the focus is on the Democratic Party um, to solve this anti democracy movement that's mm. going on. I think that I well, I certainly hope that Democrats are quietly collaborating like Holder, Obama, and and all the uh, power brokers are collaborating with clear-minded Democratic Republicans who have finally come to face how much of their infrastructure, how much of their party is anti-democratic. Mm. And I hope that they are collaborating together um, to solve this issue that um, that, fa- that faces all of us. It's not just a Democrat party mm. um, a problem. It is a, 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 a country problem that we have with an, a party that is anti-democratic. Yeah, that, and it's I the small that, D democratic uh, exactly, issues. Yeah, Gloria, exactly. I, I, I really appreciate the call and the, and the thoughts. I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. Uh, Isaac Dover, I want you to respond quickly. I've got about a minute left uh, to, to what Gloria is saying. Listen, the Democrats are going through a lot of existential crises right now, but uh, it's not the uh, loss of faith in small-d democracy that you Mm -hmm. see among a lot of Republicans. Uh, the, The trick here is that it's the Democratic Party that's in power in Washington at this point, and they have to figure out how to make this work because they're in charge. And uh, you see a lot. The book involves the riot and things that happened uh, after the election and and presents a lot of the problems that are facing Democrats now as they, they try to move forward. Yeah. OK. Edward Isaac Dover, really great to have you here for this conversation. And congrats on the new book. Thanks. Very Thank you. Much. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I want to thank our intern, Dan Netter, for his help with today's show. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about the controversy that surfaced around the University of Michigan coach Fielding Yost and how far we should be prosecuting cultural cultural crimes of the past.
This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.